With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Ohio Mysteries. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Steve, I know this question is going to sound like it's coming out of the blue, so just go with it. If I strung up a corpse on a pole, gave you a handgun, and told you to take a shot at it, that it was okay because he was a killer... How easy would it be for you to simply grab the gun and do it? Just shoot a dead corpse? Well, I'd say no thank you. What the heck? And yet, in 1904, up to 4,000 citizens of Springfield, Ohio, men, women, and children, spent hours celebrating around a dead man on a telephone pole and passing a couple of dozen revolvers around so people could riddle him with bullets. Ugh, the power of mob mentality. Exactly. You know, Ohio has had a number of mob riots that had devastating consequences. Most of them started with the act or the attempt of lynching, followed by the destruction of a neighborhood or business district or government buildings. When I read the details of these stories, I always wonder if people woke up the next day wondering if they had been overcome by a spell. I mean, I get it. You can't tell me those 4,000 people in Springfield were all horrible people, and yet something happened to make them think that, in that moment, shredding a corpse on a telephone pole and apparently in front of their children was acceptable behavior. I also want to believe that a great many of people involved in those mob affairs did come to their senses later. But it's also human nature to double down and try defending your mistakes. While some of Ohio's most notorious mob events ended in convictions of the lead perpetrators, there were cases where local juries refused to punish anyone, insisting the action of the mob was just as well served. You mentioned lynching, and I think we've done a number of episodes where that came into play. Not only black men, but back in the day, mobs formed quickly to lynch child killers, cop killers, and rapists. Yep. And actually, tonight's episode includes mention of a group of black men who threatened to destroy the jail if they weren't handed a black man suspected of killing another black man. 
I'd like to say that we've come a long way from those days of avenging mobs, but I don't know if we have. Well, let's start covering some of these historic events, because they certainly qualify as curiosities of human behavior. We're going to mark this occasional series under the name The Mystery of Mob Mentality. And first up tonight, we're going to the city of Springfield. Just a warning here. Maybe you could guess from this episode's opening, there are some disturbing descriptions. Probably no more so than we've had on other episodes, but just a warning all the same. The whole incident in Springfield began with a black man named Richard Dickerson. Richard Dickerson was called Dick, or Dixon for short. He was a transplant to Springfield from Kentucky, and for the previous seven years, he had been living with his girlfriend, Mamie Corbin, in a boarding house where Mamie was a cook. But the romance of this relationship had faded long ago. Dickerson was a heavy drinker and a womanizer, and Mamie wanted to be rid of him. A year earlier, as a matter of fact, Mamie had filed charges against him for fornication. Yep, screwing someone who was not your wife was against the law. He had to pay a $5 fine and received a suspended six-month jail sentence for that. But as squabbling couples often do, they stayed together anyway. And they were still in that boarding house a year later, in March of 1904, when they had yet another big argument. This time, Dickerson left the house in a huff. Sometime later, he returned to get his clothes, but the landlord, Matilda Jones, barred him from entering the house. So on Sunday evening, March the 6th, Dickerson went to the Springfield Police Department and found Sergeant Charles Collis, who agreed to accompany him back to the apartment so he could get his things. While Dickerson was gathering his clothes under the watchful eye of Sergeant Collis, he started arguing with his girlfriend and worked up some serious rage. Then, suddenly, he pulled a gun and shot her in the chest, a wound from which she would later die. Sergeant Collis immediately sprang forward to disarm Dickerson, but Dickerson turned the gun on him and shot him in the abdomen. Dickerson fled the house, but Sergeant Collis still tried to pursue him and got off a few shots from his revolver before collapsing in the yard. Collis called to some men standing by and encouraged them to give chase, and they did. Dickerson, feeling the heat from the pursuit, ran straight to the police station. There he found Sergeant Will Johnson on duty. Dickerson first pointed the gun at Sergeant Johnson, but after the sergeant demanded the gun... Dickerson handed it over and surrendered, saying, Take it. I guess I have done all the damage I can do. Monday afternoon, the 45-year-old Sergeant Collis was dying of his wounds at the city hospital. He lived long enough to say his goodbyes, make a will leaving everything to his wife, and giving Prosecutor John McGrew a statement. Word of his death spread throughout Springfield, and as it did, the word lynching started creeping into conversations. Sheriff Floyd Routson heard the rumors. 
but he didn't take it seriously. There were no obvious ringleaders he could talk to, no specific details for him to act on, just a buzz. Mayor Charles Bolas had heard the same gossip and asked Sheriff Froutson about it. Springfield had become more racially diverse in recent years, and racial tensions had already been escalating. But the sheriff blew it off. Besides, he said, the jail was impregnable. The still skeptical mayor discussed the matter with the commanders of the 3rd Ohio, the National Guard Company based in Springfield, and they advised the sheriff should take Dickerson to Dayton or Columbus to protect the prisoner and take away the motive of any potential mob. And so a rig was prepared and waiting for the transport. But the sheriff wouldn't do it. He insisted everyone was overreacting, that the feeling in the community wasn't as strong as some people were making it out to be, and he kept Dickerson in the county jail. Early that evening, a crowd mostly composed of boys showed up at the police station and demanded Dickerson be handed over to them. Sheriff Routson told the boys, go home, and they did. But the mayor didn't like the look of that and called Major T.J. Kirkpatrick, who was in charge of the militia. Looks like they mean need the help of the Ohio 3rd after all, he said. Major Kirkpatrick said he really didn't want to bring his men out on this unless it was truly necessary. So city officials agreed they would call back if things took a turn. At 9 p.m., the boys were back at the jail, but this time they were accompanied by the town's men. A small group of this crowd, led by two men that news reports later identified as Albert Lobeck and George Hill, peeled off from the main group and began battering at the east door of the jail. A posse of police rushed them, placed Lobeck and Hill under arrest for malicious destruction of property, and put them in the cell. The sheriff, meanwhile, stood at the front door of his residence, which was part of the jail complex, and gave the mob his speech about the jail being impossible to breach, that they were wasting their time, and that he would uphold his duty to protect the prisoner at all costs. The crowd dispersed, but apparently they had just paused to organize. Later, witnesses would say final plans were hatched in a local saloon owned by Harvey Rankin. Then, two hours later, the mob was back, perhaps more than a thousand of them now, filling the square from limestone to fountain, clogging Columbia Street, pouring out of every alley. They started by throwing bricks and stones through the windows, shattering just about every glass on the building's west and north side. Then some of them stormed the jail from the south door. They managed to get in and grabbed the jailer, Sherman Gregory. They held a gun to his head and told him they were going to take his life or the prisoner's life. It was up to him. Another crowd, estimated at about 600 people, broke into the door on the west side and poured into the building, overpowering the sheriff and his deputies and disarming them. The mob carried railroad iron, chisels, and sledgehammers, and threatened to destroy every cell and drag every prisoner out to be lynched unless the sheriff gave up Dickerson. 
There were different reports about who ultimately led the mob to where Dickerson was being held. Some news reports said it was the sheriff who wanted to protect the other prisoners. Some reports said it was the jailer who had the gun to his head. Whichever the case, the mob found Dickerson crouched in the corner of his cell, pleading for his life. Members of the mob entered the cell and dragged him out. News reports said he was beaten right there with clubs and feet, kicked until people could hear bones breaking. When they hauled him down a set of stairs like a log, he appeared to be more dead than alive. The mob dragged him out to the yard that surrounded the building and encircled him. A leader who wasn't identified by name told the rest of the crowd to stay back and then 20 men instantly formed a firing squad and shot Dickerson dead with their personal revolvers. They weren't done. Dickerson's body was dragged by the coat collar to the corner of Main Street and Fountain Avenue, at that time the main intersection downtown. Apparently so many men were eager to be part of this phase, they were knocking each other down in order to reach the body. Then a rope was strung to the cross arm of a telephone pole at the southeast corner and looped around the body's neck. To the crowd's chant of, lynch him, lynch him, the body was drawn up about 18 feet. And then the crowd started firing into the corpse. Newspaper reports said there were men, women, and children present, and even a number of black people. They said men were hugging and kissing each other, and women were waving their handkerchiefs in celebration. The noise was deafening. Perhaps a couple of dozen guns were passed around so everyone could take a shot at the corpse. According to the Dayton Evening Herald, the mood was festive, people cheering as the body jerked from the impact of the bullets, and the crowd going wild with delight each time a muscle was struck, causing the body's arms to convulsively fly up. The Cincinnati Enquirer described the crowd as being completely mad, saying how else to explain why no one seemed disturbed at the image of the steady stream of blood pouring from the body and pooling on the ground beneath the swinging corpse. The Enquirer also added this quirky note. For part of this time, A large crowd had remained at the jail, convinced that the sheriff had duped them and given up a dummy to drag out. So certain it was a hoax, it was a good while for them to realize that the real thing was hanging from the telephone pole. The longer the body swung, the more people showed up to participate. Some reports estimated the final crowd at 4,000. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. After about four hours, the body was finally cut down. The mob surged forward to cut pieces of the rope to take home as souvenirs. Then Dickerson's remains were given to an undertaker. 
The next day, the body was put on display and a shirt was taken off so people could see the damage. Some 5,000 people filed past it. They described the corpse as looking like the lid of a pepper box. But when the townspeople kept coming, the undertaker finally decided to just hide the body until it could be shipped to Dickerson's hometown of Cynthiana, Kentucky. The morning after the affair, Mayor Bolas, Springfield Police Chief O'Brien, and a former Mayor Burnett met and made the announcement that the sentiment among the white people was almost unanimous in endorsing the actions of the mob. They suggested the prosecutor not pursue any criminal charges, not for breaking into the jail, not for fighting with and disarming the lawmen, and certainly not for murdering Dickerson. But there were some people inside Springfield and a great many people outside Springfield completely appalled at what had happened. Many newspapers in Ohio devoted almost their entire front pages to the event and were universal in printing editorials calling the affair shameful and a blight on the entire state. One such newspaper wrote, The lynching was one of the most horrible in the history of the country, and Springfield stands aghast today at the work of her citizens. Judge J.K. Maurer of the local Clark County Common Pleas Court called the lynching a deep disgrace and encouraged Prosecutor McGrew assemble a grand jury to quickly identify the leaders. One editorial in the Lima Times Democrat, however, expressed the overwhelming sentiment that was going to guide this entire affair. It wrote, While the lynching is deplored, The community is almost a unit in believing the lawless element of the city has learned a wholesome lesson. The mob's killing of Dickerson and the destruction of his corpse turned out to be just the tip of the iceberg. Less than 24 hours after his body was lowered from that pole, the town's men were gathering again at the corner of High and Spring Streets and working themselves into a frenzy. City leaders, believing the mob's rage had been sated with the death of Dickerson, were caught completely by surprise. By 10.30 p.m. that March 8th, the new mob had grown to 1,500 people. A local pastor, Father Krogan of St. Raphael Church, went to them and pleaded for them to break up and go home. But the crowd only turned and started to march toward the Black District. Springfield police were called to duty and nearly 40 of them responded, but they were a small obstacle to this moving armed mass. The intent of the crowd, news reports later said, was to purify the city of dives and joints that contributed to the city's growing crime rate. And that started with an area called the Levee, a black neighborhood which contained two- and three-story saloons, brothels, a restaurant, and tenement housing along East Washington Street between Gallagher and Spring Streets. When the mob reached the Big Four Railroad Yards, they collected all the combustible material they could carry. They divided themselves into three groups. One went into Les Thomas's restaurant, one into Thomas's saloon, and another into a saloon owned by Man Tolis. 
The mob fired their guns, not aiming at anyone, but in warning. Patrons and upstairs residents of all three establishments, as well as those of adjoining buildings, screamed and ran for their lives. Many of them didn't stop until they reached the police station, where they asked for protection and were given shelter. Back at the levee, the mob piled all the combustibles they had collected from the railway yard and set them on fire. Some news reports said the honor of the first match was given to a 12-year-old boy who lit the trash heap in Les Thomas's saloon. Then the crowd walked back to the railroad yard to watch the pyrotechnics from a safe distance. The fire leaped to other buildings, five in all, mostly old wooden structures that went up in flames easily. It was midnight, and just one of the city's fire crews responded, a hook-and-ladder truck. The mob threatened them not to interfere. The other fire crews flatly refused to respond at all as the fire consumed a row of apartments from Spring to Gallagher Street. Later, Fire Chief Folrath defended that decision, saying his men thought the buildings weren't worth saving. He said, My men were so thoroughly wrought up and so disgusted with the levy that they would not make strenuous efforts to save the dilapidated structures. As this was happening, Mayor Bolas quickly called Governor Myron Herrick asking for troops. The governor mobilized the militia from Xenia, Urbana, and Dayton. But the local militia, the Ohio 3rd, was so slow to answer the call to muster, some out-of-town companies arrived by train before the Ohio 3rd would agree to leave their armory in Springfield. With the troops steadily arriving throughout the night, the mob finally dispersed. When the sun rose the next day, white Springfield residents found uniformed militia strolling their sidewalks. The city's 5,000 black residents either barricaded themselves in their homes or left town altogether. The mayor estimated the day after at least 500 blacks had immediately fled the city. The militia stayed in town for a week. They couldn't leave right away. There were rumors circulating that the mob wanted to take out another black neighborhood known as the Honky Tonk. The guard had shipped into Springfield from Columbus extra ammunition. Martial law went into effect. The town saloons, and reportedly there were 148 of them, were ordered closed. Gun and ammunition cells were banned. The guard also had their hands full watching over some 25,000 outsiders who had come to town for a peek at the smoldering ruins of the levee. Wednesday morning, Judge Maurer, already very vocal in his opinion about the lynching, said, Every public-spirited man in this city ought to cry out for law and order. They ought to demand that the officials take decisive action to relieve the blot on the city's name. And Judge Maurer promised to see punished the men responsible for these outrages. That Sunday, Ministers throughout the town wrote sermons denouncing the attack. One such example was the Reverend H.G. Moore of the Universalist Church, who announced his subject would be the Brotherhood of Man and the Darkest of Springfield. 
Governor Herrick called the county prosecutor to make sure he was taking the whole affair seriously. He said Springfield should be made an example of to discourage similar behavior elsewhere. Prosecutor McGrew promised he would. The special grand jury was formed in April and met for two weeks. In an unusual move that would be challenged in a lawsuit later, McGrew handpicked his grand jury, selecting 15 leading citizens that included manufacturers, farmers, an editor, a shop foreman, and wholesale and retail men. But even after hearing from more than 571 witnesses, the grand jury returned only six indictments against four men. For the lynching of Dickerson, they charged Earl Salkins, a well-known baseball player, and a William Lobeck and Walter Hill. By the way, you might recall that I said two men were arrested the first time the mob tried to break into the jail, and newspapers identified them as Albert Lobeck and George Hill. It's entirely possible, Springfield being a small town, that this William Lobeck and Walter Hill were relatives, but it's equally possible the paper got their names wrong the first time, and these men were one and the same. Now, the fourth indictment was made against James O'Brien, a saloon owner and a local prize fighter who went by the nickname Tough. He was charged with breaking into the county jail. Witnesses gave this description that when the door was breached, riders lifted O'Brien over their heads and sailed him through the crowd until he was dropped before the jailer, Sherman Gregory. Salkins and O'Brien were still in town, and both were arrested. Lobeck and Hill had skipped town. Reportedly, as Salkins stood at his arraignment, he, his wife, and his two children all broke down sobbing. The Cleveland Plain Dealer was among newspapers across the state that decried the fact that so few people in Springfield were willing to see the rioters punished. They called it a conspiracy of silence. Nobody in the mob took any pains to conceal their identities, and police officers and sheriff's deputies surely should have recognized more than four men guilty of breaking the law during those two long days of rioting, and yet, one by one, officers brought before the grand jury would only say they were so busy trying to force the crowd back, they failed to recognize anyone. The plain dealer wrote, The people of that city and Clark County must now reconcile themselves to seeing the firebugs and murderers who held carnival there for two days go unwhipped of justice. Governor Herrick was also seeking some sort of reckoning. He ordered an investigation into the action, or rather inaction, of the Ohio 3rd. On June the 1st, 1904, the Ohio National Guard convened a court-martial panel to try Major Thomas Kirkpatrick, as well as Captain Bradbury and Captain Bell of the Ohio 3rd, on charges of misconduct and neglect of duty. The allegations were that local militiamen didn't want to confront their own neighbors, and that some of the militia had even participated in the mob. Before and during all of this legal maneuvering, 
The aftermath of the incident consumed Springfield. There were more race demonstration. There were rumors that black residents were planning to answer the attack with their own attacks on white neighborhoods. There was an incident where two white boys at the Schaefer Street School chased a black boy, put a rope around his neck, and dragged him on the ground before the victim could be rescued. In another incident, six sticks of dynamite were stolen from the lime quarries nearby. It was a fact that terrorized everybody, black and white. Nobody knew who had taken the dynamite or where they intended to use it. At one point, black residents living in a building called the Flicker's Nest on Easter Avenue were told to vacate, that their building was at risk. And one news report said there came a day when residents of Fair and Miami streets fled the city en masse, taking railroad cars to Zena and Dayton. And yet, all of this unrest hadn't even dampened the town's enthusiasm for lynching. From either race, apparently, in June, just two months after Dickerson's death, a mob of black men surrounded the jail, insisting the sheriff hand over Walter Fisher a black man under arrest for killing another black man named Edward Boone. Only after Sheriff Routson convinced them he had taken the suspect to Dayton for safekeeping did they leave. But when they left, they threatened they would be back to get Fisher when he came home for his trial. So we've started a lot of storylines in this episode. Let's go ahead and start winding them up. It wasn't until December of 1904 that the city brought its first riot defendant to trial. Walter Hill, who went on the run immediately after his indictment, was finally arrested and brought in. But the jury only deliberated 50 minutes before acquitting him of the lynching of Richard Dickerson. Judge Maurer, almost choking with indignation, told his jury, You are dismissed. The guilt of the defendant is clear. Go to the clerk and get your money. Prosecutor McGrew said he was undaunted and would proceed with his cases against the others. But it would take nearly another year to bring the second defendant to trial. In September of 1905, James O'Brien went to trial and was found not guilty of breaking into the county jail. At this point, court officials read the handwriting on the wall and said it was unlikely they would try anyone else. The court-martial against the three officers of the Ohio Third ended likewise. The panel found all three not guilty for not acting quickly on orders the night of the lynching and the night of the riot. Governor Herrick was angered by that decision and changed National Guard policy during his administration that required officers to respond to local emergencies immediately and without waiting for permission from upper command. Richard Dixon's family filed a lawsuit against Clark County for $5,000. That suit cited an Ohio law that provided for such a payout. The law stemmed from an incident right next door to Clark County in Champaign County just a few years earlier when the lynching of a black man suspected of rape led to a gunfight between a mob and the militia. 
That gunfight ended with two dead and another eight injured. And so Ohio decided to add a new law that the family of any lynching victim would be granted $5,000 payable by the county in which the lynching occurred. The idea was that taxpayers would share the burden of their bad behavior. And $5,000 in 1904 was a lot of money. But I found a newspaper report in September of 1905 that said the Dickerson family was still seeking that money from Clark County and that it didn't think it likely the money was ever going to be paid. The riots also cost Mayor Bolas his job. In 1905, he had to seek re-election, but lost. And the Cincinnati Enquirer said the black vote may have had an impact as they made the lynching an issue during the campaign. Racial tensions did not disappear. In 1905, Springfield police had to turn out in force to stop a mob intent on burning another black-owned saloon. And in 1906, after a black man shot and killed a railway brakeman after fleeing from a bar fight, a mob formed and chased black residents from tenements along East Columbia Street and burned down the entire block. And again, in 1921, when a race riot sparked by a black man shooting and wounding a Springfield police officer led to a gun battle where 14 people were wounded. But I can end this episode on a high note, believe it or not. Because six decades after Richard Dickerson was killed by that mob in 1904, Springfield got some positive attention for its race relations. In 1966, Springfield became the very first city in all of Ohio to elect a black mayor. His name was Robert C. Henry, born in 1921, born the same year as that big race riot. He went to Springfield High School, then Wittenberg University, served his country in World War II, then opened the Robert C. Henry Funeral Home in Springfield, which his three children still owned and operated at the start of the 21st century. He served as mayor for two years and later was even chosen by President Lyndon Johnson and President Richard Nixon to go on fact-finding missions to Vietnam. He died in 1981 at the age of 60. Well, that feels very redeeming, sort of like no matter how dark we can get as a species, we can recover. I mean, we can get better. Kind of the story of the history of our country. You know, if you move two steps forward and one step back, you're still a foot ahead. Just keep moving forward. The progression adds up. Okay, we owe a big, big thank you to Jim over at Forgotten News Podcast, one of our favorite podcasts. Jim not only pointed me to a helpful book on this topic, a 2019 publication called Lynching and Mob Violence in Ohio by David and Elise Myers. But Jim spent like three days helping me find news clippings on the aftermath of this lynching and riot. Strangely, while Ohio newspapers were filled with rich detail about the events when they happened, it was super hard to track down the outcomes of the indictments and the court martial and, and such. I would definitely have overlooked some things without Jim's help. Love the Forgotten News podcast. 
And you know what? We happen to have a promo that will tell you all about their fascinating and quirky topics. So in lieu of featured Ohio musical artists tonight, give a listen to this trailer and we know you're going to be hooked. Wait a minute. Have you heard the strange and unusual stories of the Forgotten News Podcast? Hello, everyone. This is Jim. This is Kit Karen. We host the Forgotten News Podcast. On our show, we tell true stories from history, but not the stories you learned in school. We tell stories that are obscure, mysterious, weird, wild. For example, the teenage girl who committed the last stagecoach robbery in the United States in 1899. The really dumb gang of crooks who unintentionally kidnapped the lieutenant governor of Idaho in 1929. The group of old ladies in 1893 who would secretly go out at midnight to castrate cats and then, um, speed up their journey to heaven. The farmer who vanished into thin air in front of witnesses as he simply walked across his empty dirt yard in 1889. So, on any given episode, our stories might be serious, silly, or sad. But they will always be true. So, now you know pretty much everything about what to expect if you listen to the Forgotten News Podcast. We think you'll like it. So, please, give us a try. We can hardly wait to have you be part of our audience. Bye. And remember, history is no mystery. That's it for tonight's Ohio Mystery. Find more episodes on your favorite podcast app or check us out at ohiomysteries.com for an entire list of episodes. We even have them broken down by county if you want to fine-tune your listening pleasure. just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.